worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Rich, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, thanks, Chris, mate. Thanks for having me on. No, absolute, absolute pleasure. Um, I was a bit thrown because I went to your website and the last time I went there, it was Team Rubicon. And now it's gone to uh, Operation React. Um, yeah. So um, for these uh, these uh, aging brain cells, it threw me a bit. But uh, that's to do with our cousins across the water, is it? Yeah, Team Rubicon UK was essentially a franchise of something that started in the States 10 years ago. Um, in America, they've got a huge organization, very capable, um, but it does a different thing to what we do here. It's, it's a time to to redefine the brand around what it is we do here, around our British values, around how we operate around the world, um, and to show that we're, we're an entirely English uh, or the United Kingdom organization. That's why we, we're now React. And was it, is it difficult to come to sort of choose a, it's one of those things I'm in the process of doing it myself with a charity that I'm setting up. And it's once you pick the name mm. and it's like you printed your stationery and you've got your, <laughs> you've got your web, your web domain and everything is there's no going back. Or if there is, it's a whole load of hassle. Is it, was it difficult to come to that name? Was there any reason behind it? It's, um, you know, me and you, like, we came from from the core. I wasn't necessarily the most creative of people. I'm good at getting things done. You know, someone tells me what to do, I can go and get stuff done. Um, so to start building a new brand was something brand new for me. But it was actually it was really enjoyable. You know, I, we got a company in called Creative Coup. They did us a big charity rate. and got some of the key people from the organization in to just speak about what we do, you know, pour out what we love about this, why we choose this, why we served in the first place, and pulling apart all the key parts that, make us us and react you know is it's about reference it's action you know we're, we're a direct action organization we're not interested in um the soft influence you know what do we call stuff what the politics we see things that need to happen and we, and we do it and that direct action is very important to us and that, it was pulling that out and and then they started presenting names back to us and we saw react and, and that was it. it it just captured exactly what it is we're about um, reacting situations to help people in, in need. Yeah, it certainly sums it up. And you're involved in operations, if we can call it, all, all around the globe. Yeah, wherever there's a national a natural disaster, we're we're looking to send teams. Um, over the last two years, we've responded to Indonesia three times, 
Mozambique, uh, the Bahamas, we've operated in the Congo, Uganda, we've operated here in the UK for the last four months. So um, we haven't done much in, in Central Asia and around India. They don't often let international aid in, but certainly in the East and then on the African continent, we're uh, very busy and the outer territories of the Caribbean every year when the hurricanes come through there. Well, I can't wait to hear about that. And also, Mozambique is uh, one of my old stomping grounds. So um, be fascinated to hear uh, how it is in, in that country now. Because when I was there, it was just coming out of the, the Civil War, hmm. followed, which followed the Colonial War. So the place was, uh, yeah, you can say pretty uh, war-torn. Yeah. But Royal Marines officer... Joined in yeah. 2005. Can we talk about that? Yeah, of course, mate. Um, talk about anything you want. Um, I yeah, my old man was a was a bootneck. Uh, he was a bootneck corporal in the the 80s, and so ever since I was a kid, wanted to be a Royal Marine. I didn't know what that meant, but I could just just see that I wanted to belong to something like that. You know, I wanted to be like him and his mates. Um, to belong to a team. You know, I grew up playing rugby and. That, that sense of being around people that are trying to achieve things with you is, is how I'm built and I wanted to live that life and also I wanted the challenge and the excitement and I think you know the kudos of being a of being a Royal Marine the best thing about being a bootneck is, is saying you're a bootneck and um, I, I was at what, sort of 16 and I said to dad um, I'm going to go and join the Corps now and so I, all I wanted to be was one of the lads I, I didn't want to be an officer to start with um, just wanted to be one of the lads, you know, in it. And uh, I had some GCSEs, so he said, no, you've got to go and get your get your A-levels and you try and be an officer. And I sort of kicked and screamed, but did it. I got a few A-levels, but nothing to speak of. And um, I, I went to join then at 18, uh, and I went and did POC, the Potential Officers course. But they said I was just too immature. I'd lived quite a sheltered life in Cornwall. And they just said, like, you're not, you're not ready to leave men. You know, so I was mega threaders and I was on the train back from Limston and I said to dad well I'm gonna I'm gonna join the Paris and he was like no, no Paris living in my house so and he I was thought he was joking but he was deadly serious so he wouldn't let me join the Paris either um so I went back to rugby for a while this is like 2000 I think um 2001 2002 um went back to rugby for a bit and then rejoined at uh, 22 um which was actually the right time for me I'd grown a lot by then I'd been around I was just a more mature person, ready to take on commando training and leadership training um, and be more credible. I think if, I'd, if I had got through at 18, 19, to then go and take a troop of, you know, double-hard season bootnecks on ops, I wouldn't have been the bloke I was at 22, 23. You changed a lot in those years. Only. So I'm glad my old man kept me, kept me on course. And also, my life has turned out, you know, I'm happy with where I'm at. And, you know, some of the opportunities I've had now probably wouldn't have been there had I joined as one of the lads because I didn't have degrees and things. So actually being an officer gave me a, a different CV coming out. And, and what I do now is actually because I did join as an officer. So I owe him that as well. I'd have had a great life either way, but uh, lots of these opportunities have come from him uh, just making me hold on that little bit longer. At what stage did you do your degree, Rich? No, I haven't got one. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, um, so I, I left uh, sixth form college with uh, 
a D and three E's at A level, and then I was uh, I was playing rugby. There was a gap in Royal Marines officer selection. I'm I'm a bit of a, a jammy fucker sometimes, and uh, there was just this gap in time where you could join with A levels and no degree, and as long as you were over 21, you promoted at the same rate as those with degrees. So uh, it only lasted two years, and I <laughs> I managed to land in there. So yeah, no, I haven't got a degree. Well, that's fascinating. I'm I'm asking on behalf of all our young friends that will be watching and listening that are thinking about joining the Corps. And this is the mm. sort of thing they find uh, not so much fascinating, but it's this kind of juggling that a lot of people are doing in their mind. Should I join at this stage? Should I be an officer? Do I need an education? This kind of thing. Do you need a degree now as we speak to become an officer? I'm a little bit out of date. You know, I've, I've been out of the Corps eight years, but you can still join as an officer at 18 if you've got the aptitude so you don't need a degree but what that means is um i'll i'll have to fact check this but what it always meant was if you joined at 18 or without a degree you would join as a second lieutenant and you would spend then three years as a lieutenant whereas most second lieutenants promote to captain at the end of their first year of troop command so it just means your initial promotion is a bit slower um so if you are joining as an officer you know although i didn't have a degree I probably did it the harder way. You know, having a degree does make you promote that bit quicker. Mm. Um, but either way, the core is just a great life choice. Whether you're one of the lads or an officer, it sets you up. It got me out of Cornwall. It got me, you know, to see the world in a bigger view for than what I could see. And had I not joined the core, be it as a, a lad or as an officer, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd be doing something in Cornwall still, probably having not seen anything of the world, you know, to mention of. Yeah. Did it? Um, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I can empathise there because I grew up in Cornwall as well. Oh, right. so, well, I grew up in lots of uh, many. I had to think six. I went to six different schools by the time I was uh, 11. Right. Um, but uh, Cornwall was certainly a place I grew up, which was, uh, you know, like everywhere in life, there's some great things about it. And there's some, there's some challenging, challenging things. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful, but it is the end of the line. Yeah, it is. And you if you grow up in a Cornish village, you gotta know you gotta be prepared to fight. <laughs> put, it, put, it, put it that way. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, luckily if you're as angry a young man as I was, that's not not too much of a problem. <laughs> but what I wanted to ask is, was it um did that put you at odds with your batch mates? Because my best friend uh, we passed out of training together having joined up together and having grown up together mm. just just coincidence um his dad incidentally was a, a wo2 in the falklands conflict kind of quite a heroic character mm. and my mate passed out did i don't know two or three years in a unit and then let actually left the marines and rejoined as an officer which might sound a bit strange to people but you have to you have to leave i think you have to leave and then re-sign a, a completely new sort of contract yeah. and he went on his uh poc so his potential officers course mm. as a marine or he might have been a corporal i'm not sure and of course the the instructors there are having to call him sir, which was all just, yeah. it, 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 it probably sounds a bit petty to people who haven't served, but when you're in, the politics of all that stuff is, is um, you know, quite important. And um, 
the point I'm getting to, Rich, is he would come around my house with with his his batch, right? So I'm a lance corporal, and I've got all this these officer types in my my house, and I could tell just from their conversation that these were educated young men. Mm. They would come up with words like Tosca, and I'm like, <laughs> what, 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 you know? And Tosca, obviously, being a, a, an opera, and um, right. And did that put you at sort of odds with them at all in, in any kind of, did it put you on, a, on another footing is what I'm trying to say? Um, I mean, I was, I was definitely uh, an unpolished diamond at the time. And even, you know, as a junior officer, lots of my reports were like, you know, there's a lot of potential in this young man, but he needs polish, you know, he needs refinement. My, uh, my Cornish edges. But I think I probably still need a little bit of polish and that's, uh, that's fine by me. I mean, my best mate uh, I met in training uh, very different backgrounds, you know. He, you know, economics degree from uh, from King's, you know, very privileged background. His father was an admiral, but Royal Marines training, certainly in the batch, yeah, it's it's an alpha environment. So, if if you can prove your worth in other ways, the fact that you probably don't have the Oxford education that some of them have is it, less important. So, I certainly didn't feel as an outcast, but I was aware of um, my background for quite a long time as a junior captain, because actually it wasn't in the batch that it was a problem because they were my mates and, you know, I was uh, lucky to to be at the upper end of the batch. But certainly after my first troop commander in Afghanistan, going back to the commander training centre as a troop commander, I had a company commander who was very hung up on my lack of my lack of breathing um and that made it a bit more prevalent to me and you know he, he would he would stand other young officers up and display their gravitas and their backgrounds versus mine but you know that's more a reflection on him he, he was a bit of a prick to be honest um than than me and you know after that I, I didn't feel it again because you're just another captain um but you know always aware I was in need of polish back then mm. has um has Officer training sort of softened at all. They're talking about this kind of deficit in numbers. Um, like, for example, when I joined, you you couldn't, you weren't allowed to wear glasses. I mean, you know, you had to have I don't know, is it called twenty twenty vision or whatever for the sort of, you know, the 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 field craft aspect, looking through your 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 SUSAT site as we had back then. Yeah. Um, and now I see, and this is not not a criticism at all, um, folks. It's just a surprise that there's sort of nods marching around Limston with glasses, which was something the Yanks always were able to, you know, yeah. you could join the join the U.S. Marines with glasses, but it was something the Marine, Marines didn't. And I'm I'm guessing it's because they they're finding it hard to recruit. Um. You know, I, I don't sit in the policy making of, of Royal Marines uh, selection, but, you know, when I joined, yeah, you weren't allowed glasses. And then I did see when I was training nods, they've got the big pus of specs on that would be taped to their head. Um, and there was some sort of requirement that they always had to have them on. But of course, when, when I first joined as well, or not long before I joined, you weren't allowed to be gay in the military. Um, time just moves on, doesn't it? Society changes and the military has to keep up. Uh, so it, it may be partly to do with recruitment numbers, but it also might just be the fact that society is changing and the work that we do is changing. And um, of course, the core is no longer just for just for men over five foot seven, you know, that we all look the same, you know, 
every, there's uh, men and women can apply to join now. Um, I just, uh, it'd be interesting. I think the core and the paras and some of those uh, infantry units will probably hold firmer their, their standards because there'll always be a need for that level of soldiering. I've just seen the Corps rolling out the future commando forces at the moment, going back to what it was we were originally, you know, small light commando teams deployed around the globe, whereas big parts of the army will be moving now to what the new threat is facing. You know, and there's going to be a lot to do with, with cyber and soldiers will have to have a different set of skills to the ones I had. I was quite good at press-ups and running straight, whereas actually that's potentially becoming less prevalent across the tri-service now. And um, so it's just about balance, isn't it? Life's, life's about balance. And yeah. just having loads of six foot one white blokes that can see really far and do loads of press ups might not be that helpful against Russia right now, you know? <laughs> it's great. It's great the way you, you, you sum that up. <laughs> um, so, what, how did you find your commander test? Because officers have to do them in a shorter amount of time, isn't it? Like the, the 30 miler is in seven hours and not. Not eight. Yeah, um, I mean, we're a bit older on average when we do our, our commando training. So most most people join the batch at twenty one. They've gone to university, so they're a little bit older, a little bit more physically developed, but not yet on the downward slope that I find myself on now. Um, and yeah, commando training is it's fucking tough, isn't it? And the commando tests are very tough. And the reason that the officers get an hour less for a thirty miler and less of the endurance course something is you have to show you can do what the lads do and, and a little bit more because of course you're not just there to be with the lads you're there to lead the lads and so you have to show you have the ability to not be just hanging out at the back when they're when they're grafting it's the same on on all of the exercises lads will be getting their heads down you know they'll be doing the century team you're up planning what's happening the next day with your troop sergeant so it does deliberately make it harder for you but of course once you leave training and um, you have a lot more freedom. So you have to suck it up for 15 months and really getting put through the ringer. But, you know, from the moment you then pass out, you are treated uh, as an adult and you're, you're given a lot more flexibility and freedom than a young Marine or a Lance Corporal obviously gets, even a junior NCO. You know, so you have to earn that right to have that level of um, freedom and the level of responsibility that comes with holding the Queen's Commission. Um, but it's definitely tough, you know. The, the 30 miler for anyone, whether it's in eight hours or seven hours over over Dartmoor with your kit on is uh, is a hell of a test. Right? I hope they never change that because it's such a wonderful, it's the symbol of being a commando to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we scraped in at seven hours 52 or something. So there wasn't a, my, my um, uh, who was it? My friend's troop. I think it's this friend I was, I was mentioned earlier. They came in. They had horrendous weather. It was snowing. It was a blizzard on Dartmoor. Dartmoor, you know, as as you well know, Rich, is not not the nicest places to be a lot of the time, let alone in a blizzard. And they came in at uh, oh, it's his batch. Yeah, it was his batch when he so when he went through officer training, they came in at one minute past the seven hours. And despite that horrendous weather, their commander went, everyone here, you know, back on a bus tomorrow morning, four o'clock or whatever it is, you're doing it all again. There was yeah. no grace, no, no, you know, one, one minute over. So, that's standards, isn't it? You know, 
the standards are there to be met. You know, you can't start putting too much judgment in because all of a sudden it's two minutes, it's three minutes, it's four minutes. Mm. Time is time, isn't it? <laughs> and after you've passed out of Linston, um, you you do further training? No, so um, obviously the, the lads' training is, is nine months long. Um, it's called sorry, sorry, Rich. Is it leadership training or command training or something? Yeah, no. So um, we go to Limston for fifteen months commando training. So the first part of that is largely the same as the lads' training. The first nine months, we then do more leadership focused work there, tactics, troop tactics, defence writing, report writing, all that kind of stuff. But it's still in the context of commando training. So you're still getting beasted around Limston, but you you're wearing your green lid. Um, so you don't have to do so much like TikToking around the uh, the camp. You're allowed to walk at a smart bimble. Um, but so we'll, we'll join every batch starts in September and then it passes out the following December. Um, and that's them then straight to straight to a unit. So they'll go from Limston to to one of the three commander units or FPG as was, which I think is four three commander now, isn't it? Yeah. And what was your progression? Um, so we. We were going through training um, as Afghan was kicking off again. So I was in training watching three para downrange on Herit 4, living in the platoon houses, knowing that that was very likely to be a, a big portion of our batch's immediate future. And so being a Cornish lad, I wanted to go to 4-2 commando, but also I wanted to go to 4-2 commando because they were, they were pegged to, to take over from three para in the Sangin Valley there. So I passed out from training on the Thursday along with um, the rest of the batch and 12 of us flew straight to theatre on the Saturday. So it was off the parade square, very quick weekend with the folks and then up to Bryce Norton to fly to Afghan. And we we took over a command of our troops actually in a desert leaguer on a, on a huge battle group operation. Uh, so we sort of transited through Bastion real quick and then we were out to take command. It was a it was a high five with the troop commander that was getting on the helicopter I was getting off, and uh, and that was it. And so I was uh, into the business. Oh, really in at the deep end. Yeah, yeah. How, how, did, um, how did you how did you feel getting getting on that? Was it a Hercules at Bryce? Um, oh God, I can't remember. No, it wasn't a Herc all the way. You get the you get the AC ten. I think it is that sort of Civi esque RAF flight. Uh, to Kandahar, then it was a, a herc into Bastion, sort of tactically flying in. Um, you're 22, 23 years old. You've just got a green lid. You think you're bulletproof. You're, you're mega excited to just get your teeth into it. On you. you just you don't think there's any consequences that age. Or I certainly didn't. Um, going back as an older bloke, you know, a few years later, it was a bit different. But at 22, 23, it just looks like the most exciting adventure you can ever go on. You're surrounded by your best mates and you've got the green lid on. Like, the world can't touch me. It was more about what was what I was more apprehensive of was making a good impression on the lads early. You know, I just didn't want to be a dickhead officer. Um, I didn't want to be one of those stereotypical like Rupert's. So I just wanted to make sure I made a good impression on the lads and and listened and didn't didn't come in thinking I knew everything. That was far more apprehensive than actually being at war. It's uh, building a rapport with the lads. Yeah, I was. That was going to be my next question. What 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 was more worrying the IEDs going off or um, taking command? Yeah, definitely taking command. Definitely. You know what bootnecks are like, the strong willed, you've got to, you've got to win them over early. Otherwise your life's going to be a misery, isn't it? <laughs> and did you, were they, how can you say when you've worked alongside the army, as we did quite a lot in Northern Ireland, 
I mean, you saw the way they talked to their officers. It was, it was an eye opener. Mm. They literally go, "Oi, wanker," and their officer would go, "Yes." <laughs> yeah, it was, and that would never. Well, at least when I was in the call, that would. <laughs> if you just if you said that, you'd you'd. Um, I don't think your career would be um, very long. But did you build a good rapport with the guys? I mean, I think so. I uh, I hope so. That they might have a different story to tell, but uh, I I think certainly. Well, you know, actually, for probably most of my career, I probably was over familiar with the lads. I, I always blurred the lines. You know, I, I said like I wanted to join as one of the lads. I've probably lots of me in my early career associated with them more than with my my officer peers, um, and. I, I don't think I know everything. And so I, I hope uh, when I'm building those relationships, even now, I don't pretend to know everything. And certainly when you're taking over a troop that's been been scrapping for the last two, three months, you, you don't know anything. So just going in, be softly, softly, find it out over time, get to know them. Um, I, I always called them by their first names. Um, they'd always called me boss, but uh, I, I always use first name terms. Certainly out there, a bit, bit more passes on camp. This is where I probably did blur the lines with familiarity. Um, but it, I, I always felt it was about respect both ways. And you, you lead through personality, not through the rank. So if, if they respect you and if you respect them and you're making good decisions on their behalf and you care about them, they will follow. They will, they will largely do what it is you want them to do because it's the right thing and they're bought into it. If you... If you act differently to that and you're, you know, the other side of that coin, you can tell them to do it. They're not going to do it. You know, so you have to win their favor as well. You know, you have to create alignment. It's not all about just giving direct orders, as you know, that, that they won't they won't do it. Um, so that was that was my approach, whether it's right or wrong. It's it said me most of the time in, you know, it's worked out for me most of the time. But uh, so it's probably not everyone's. Uh, it's certainly not what you would get taught as a young officer going through training. I think you sound brilliant, Rich. You, you, that's just now I'm being serious. It's you did get a few knobs, you know. That there, there was definitely they were sort of okay, and then the, the switch that 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 kind of class divide would kick in, and they'd yeah. come out with something that was so fucking rude. <laughs> and condes- condescending. Yeah. Um, I, I just, when whatever you whatever you do in life, if you're if you're leading or managing people, you have to put lots of deposits into your team. You have to you, you have to be polite with them. You have to ask. You have to be warm with them because at certain times you're going to have to make decisions that they don't like, and that's making a withdrawal. So the more deposits you make in the people around you, uh, the less difficult it is to make the withdrawal at the critical time because they know that it's for the right reasons at the right time. And it has a, a massive effect on morale, doesn't it? If you've got a good boss, that's half the backstabbing and the, you know, what do we call it? Dripping, isn't it? That, that's half the dripping that, that's, that's not going to take place. I think being a, being a young officer, it's different once you start getting over major, but I think being a young officer is a bit like being a referee. No one cares if you're a good one. They only care if you're a bad one. <laughs> no one says when a referee's had a good game, that's sort of expected. But everyone knows when the ref's had a bad one. I think it's probably similar because um, it does have a massive effect on morale. If, if, you're, if you're treating the lads poorly, if you're not cutting them away or understanding their situations, getting to know what their situations are, um, 
it it creates a really bad relationship for them and, and, and creates a bad working environment. They're not gonna they're not gonna succeed because they're not gonna be driving hard. You know, you gotta create the environment that people can succeed in repeatedly. And then also you look good for that because the troops are doing well. Mm. Did you and did you find Rich some of your troops? Were there sort of some of the men and some of the NCOs were particularly supportive of you or they were really good at their job, which made yours a lot easier? Yeah, my, I've, my life's been made very easy by the people I've been lucky to be around. Um, you know, I look back on, on Herit 5, I'm still mates with all of my corporals from, from that troop. I haven't seen uh, my troop sergeant for, for a long time, but we got on really well. Um, and I'm, I'm still mates with some of the Marines as well. That was, you know, a fantastic time in my life. Um, yes, it was kinetic operations abroad, but you know, the relationships we formed there have, have lasted through, and the same when I went back. So um, I've always uh, had a good relationship with my NCOs. They might say something different. They might say I'm a total wanker behind my back, but uh, we're, we're still in touch. But if you surround yourself with good people, this is not just the Marines. You know, this is what I've done since you end up having an easy ride because you, you're surrounded by positive people that are driving for the same thing. And uh, it doesn't take a lot of leading then. You're just, you're just there to write the reports at the end, don't you? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm kind of experiencing a bit of that myself at the moment. When you, you have someone that wants to work with you and they share the same vision, it, it's half the, uh, half the battle. Yeah, definitely. What was it like then getting on the ground? Um, the, I think the problem with us Marines is we live such an extreme alpha male life that we just take it for granted and we don't, we're probably not good or maybe there's, there's not a lot of opportunity to put it across into words that, that um, interested outsiders can sort of really you, I mean, you hear Marines with them, and, oh yeah, I, I, you know, did this last week, da, 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 and it's and it's something that's like really extreme. It leaves people kind of a bit gobsmacked. Mm. Um, so, with that in mind, can you describe, you know, your first patrol when you ran out, ran out of the gate, so to speak? Um, yeah, I mean it the core and lots of part of the military is a pressure cooker of of driven adrenaline junkies you know you know certainly in the core it's alpha males but across the army there's uh there's just as many females that feel like this as as there is males and i remember that first patrol um we, we were doing something slightly different it wasn't patrolling the way you understood it from northern ireland we were we were loading up into vehicles and doing long range desert patrols up and down the San Wadi, probing the Wadi, the Wadi looking for the Taliban. This was very early in the conflict. We didn't know where they were, what the motor operandi was. We were trying to drag the fighting away from the district centers and the platoon houses. So it was just one massive adventure. You know, it was just one huge adventure. The consequences were, were absolute. Um, so you had to be great at what you did, but I loved that. It was simple. Just had to be really brilliant at a very narrow part of the world. Just be a good soldier, be a good troop commander, and just keep repeating that for six months. Um, but the fact that the consequences were so high, surrounded by people so similar, you know, we all think in such a similar way, which means there's very few disagreements. It might mean that the decision making is actually not as good as it would be with a wider breadth of thought, 
but at the time you're, you're fully aligned you fully believe in what you're doing you're all you know in a way you're addicted to that that life and that rush it would it was excellent in that in that regard. it's very hard then to come back from and replicate um, and this is where um, people struggle to not just um, embed back into Civvy Street, but just embed back into camp life. You had this like total focus where consequences are absolute. Life is simple. There's no girlfriends or bills or anything. It's just simple. And then you come back to, to camp life and it's back to Friday parades, not making sure your room is tidy before you can go home. And there isn't that omnipresent pressure. That's when people start to struggle and they need to find ways to disengage from kinetic operations find it here with humanitarian operations you need to disengage from what it is you've been doing and come back to normal life of you know refine your balance ready to go and do it again in a few years time or whenever it is again but you can't just stay at that state of hyper alertness and readiness all the time it's really corrosive mm-hmm. was there um i mean the threat of the threat of IEDs, how did you find, how did you cope with that? Um, well, I mean, Herit 5, the first time, 2006, six seven, IEDs weren't so prevalent. There was a lot of legacy mines around the, um, the Sangin area from, from the Russians in the 80s. But IEDs weren't the thing, and that was a, that was a small arms um, and mortars battle mainly. So we were still running around in um, combat body armor with a tiny plate over our heart which you'd have to be in a sniper to hit anyway, you know, <laughs> much more likely to get around somewhere else. So Herit 5, very different. You know, that was fighting door to door, very light, moving very quick. Um, not particularly stressful because of that. You know, that's exactly how we were trained. That's exactly what we wanted to do. Going back into a ground-holding role in Herit 14 when the IED threat was, you know, it just built year on year on year on year, you know. People say the peak was 9, 10, whatever. It doesn't matter. All of a sudden, the floor was littered with the IEDs. And then trying to, trying to lead people um, who know that every step, there's a very real risk that it's going to go off. But we'd also started to lose touch with the point of the conflict um, or the campaign. Every battle group had gone out with its own campaign plan. Where was the, where was the joined up thinking for the, the strategic plan for Afghanistan? I understood it in the early days but it felt like the, the mission was creeping in an undefined way. So then you've got um, these highly trained blokes, but you can see morale slipping. You can see their reason for being there slipping. And the reason only then becomes to look after left and right. Um, but you, you could see they start to think, well, this isn't worth dying for anymore. So you've got to try and keep morale up, keep professionalism up. And you know what one is like, we're very lucky. They're very driven. They're very professional. Um, but even them, in those circumstances, you can see they're just, they're, it didn't feel like we were winning. So they're starting to lose touch with the why. And, and that's a really difficult leadership challenge. Mm. And so you, Rich, you said Herrick 5 and Herrick 14? Yes, yeah, so that's 14 with 2011. Oh, okay. And what, what did you do? outside of um conflict if i can call it that did you i mean did you have a did you specialize in the marines or yeah um so i was a heavy weapons officer i was a mortar officer um so i, I came back from from Herit five i went back to the commander training center to train recruits for a couple of years 
Um, I was then on the OPTAG training team, so training all of the army battle groups that were coming through ready to redeploy to Afghanistan. Then I went on my mortars course, which brought me back to back to Fort 2 Commando. Mm. What's it like firing a mortar? <laughs> firing a mortar is far easier than managing mortarmen. Um, mortarmen are renowned for being uh, pretty loose. Um, but also, they're, they're very mature troops. You've got a, your Marines are 25, 26. They've been around the block. They're big, robust. Um, it's, uh, it's great, actually, being a mortar troop commander. I think one of the best troop commands there is. Um, and yeah, I mean, firing a mortar, put, put the bomb in the barrel and, and it goes six, uh, six kilometres. But yeah, it actually, the bigger challenge is working with very seasoned Marines who really know their stuff. Um, and, and have mortars, mortar troop has its own culture. Uh, so getting in with that quickly is uh, more of a challenge. Yeah, when I first got to 4-2, I was, in, I was put straight into support company. And uh, yeah, come half two in the morning when the, all the clubs and Union Street <laughs> kicked out. You just wait for your door to come smashing in and some some shenanigans to be done to you um yeah and what what made you um decide to leave or was that a, was that a contract it was that your time was up um so in 2009 i got a little bit uh, banged up so i got medical discharge and came back from from afghan it was an ied blast there it's left me mutt and death so um, we came back in the winter 2011 and I was discharged the, the following summer. Um, so I never, I never had a plan outside the War Marines. It was always join the Corps, serve forever and then and die, basically. Um, so all of a sudden, just, just coming 30, I was having to try and figure out a, a new career for myself that I hadn't, I hadn't ever planned. So how, how did you get blown up, if that's not a stupid question? Um, no, I mean, it, it's, as I said, we were, we were operating in, in Natalie North at the time, a place called Loimanda, and it was, it was littered with IDs. We were, we were trying to pull the fighting away from the bazaars to try and uh, stimulate commerce against it, start getting some sort of microeconomy going in the area. Because Afghan was meant to be about peace and stability. It was supposed to try and provide security so governance could build and commerce could build. So we were trying to pull the fighting away from the bazaar. Um, but in an area that was just littered in IEDs. And uh, the, the, the plan was to just, we weren't going to stay there for a long time. We'd, we'd adopted this compound called Toki. We would just mark the IEDs and avoid them. So we'd know where they all were and then we'd just leave them. And uh, we'd re but reported it. And one day we reported it and they sent an American 8 a mine disposal team, forward to clear the device, which we just couldn't understand why they were doing it. Because we're like, well, okay, we've got one here, but it's also one there, one there, one there, you know, what's the point? We're never going to clear this. And uh, unfortunately, he, he stood on the device and detonated it uh, next to me, which, which, which killed him. Um, and I was very, very lucky that uh, apart from some ears and uh, some circulation issues, I'm completely fine. Um, I was barely had a scratch on me. And that's just one of those things sometimes, by the grace of God, go you. Um, and... This is a prime example of what I'm saying, how we just pass things off as if, you know, like we're going to the shop to buy, buy a pint of milk. I mean, you've just been blown up. Uh, were, you in, were you in shock? W were, were you trying to take charge of your troop? What, how did it go down? 
Yeah, so I mean, I was an acting company commander at the time. So the previous company commander had been had been blown up. So as a captain, I was given this composite company. And I think when you find yourself in leadership positions, this is in the military or elsewhere, your problems fall to the back of the queue, and rightfully so. Um, it's a bit like you're leading a speed march. You, know, you get leaders legs, don't you? You're running much faster than you ever could on your own because your needs fall to the back of the queue. Um, and actually, you know, it, it was just a situation that had to be dealt with at the time. You know, what was more important was seeing if we could uh, save Staff Sergeant Deville, uh, which unfortunately we couldn't. Also, his team had lost three people in three consecutive weeks. You know, their needs, getting them back to camp, getting out of the situation. You're very vulnerable just after an IED strike because, you know, everyone's adrenaline goes up to here, but you're, you're, you're focused on the victim. You're focused on the injury. So getting that patrol collapsed back into the compound was far more important than, than how I was feeling. Um, and of course, that's how most of us back then dealt with it. We weren't very good at talking about um, stress or anxiety or all those kind of things. There's a much better military now that engages with those topics in a much more mature way. Um, but we, we didn't really back then. Mm. I mean, you've just described a situation. Did you say Staff Sergeant Deville? Yeah. I mean, you just described a situation that to most people would be beyond all conception. I mean, uh, it certainly would scar a lot, of, a lot of people for life. Was that was that a regular occurrence? Did that become the sort of normal? Um, Fortunately for me, it wasn't the norm. Um, but of course, the the Afghan conflict, the Iraq conflict. Took, took a huge amount of um, service people's lives. And so in, in Afghan, that would have been a daily occurrence. And luckily for me, it wasn't a daily occurrence. And, and I've never met Staff Sergeant Deville before. He got off a helicopter to, to, to fuse a device. Um, I met him then. And unfortunately, the next time uh, I saw him was putting him on the helicopter in a, in a completely different circumstance. Mm. Um, and yes, it is. That is a foreign experience. It's something to say. It's something that most people can't comprehend. But I, I firmly believe that's the point in the military. You know, there's there's people that join it to serve, uh, be it their country, their people, whatever it is. But there is people that can work in these situations, and I, I feel that it's 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 your duty to do it. If you can do it, if you can help, then I, I think you must. And it doesn't. It's not there for everyone else to have to understand or empathise with. So the whole point is that we do this so that the majority don't have to. Um, and I sometimes struggle when I would see people come back from this and they would they would demand that everyone understood what it was had happened out there. But to me, the point of serving was that then my mum didn't have to understand, you know, or the people in the street didn't have to understand. That's why I think the military exists. That's why people join it. And we did it as a volunteer. Um, and that sense of service is so important. It's what we built React around. It's the sense of service because it doesn't have to be the military. It can be in a compl completely different context. But you use your skills, your resilience, your aptitude for good to protect the majority. Mm. My gosh. And so in your resettlement, Rich, did any of this affect you from a sort of PTSD perspective? Did you find yourself on the booze or...? Or how was I think, it? I think I've, I've been very fortunate. Um, I don't have PTSD. Um, I've certainly had my transition bumps. Um, I, my, 
I was married at the time, and my marriage didn't really survive transition to civilian street, but I probably married the, the wrong person. We married very young in a rush once back to back to Afghan. And it took me a little while to find my feet because I was trying to recreate the core in a certain way, you know, the, the purpose. From the outside looking in, it looked like I was an adrenaline junkie. I was racing motorbikes, I started boxing, you know, anything I could. It looked like I was trying to recreate the rush. Actually, I wasn't. I was just just looking for purpose. I just I believed so much in the core and what it was we stood for as a as a brotherhood and a family. I was missing that. And yeah, that's why what we get to do with React is so important to me because I can be a part of bringing these people together that that belong with like-minded people to achieve great things. And that's that's really what was missing for me. And I, yeah, I, I replaced that with as much uh, adventure or, or, or sport or fizz as I could. It takes a long time for that that level of hyper alertness to to go. You know, that level of just being turned on all the time. Mm. Uh, just one question before we leave Afghanistan. Then, do you are you friends with Vicey? A new Vicey, yeah. I haven't seen him for a long time, but yeah, we were we were on the same tour together. Yeah, Vicey and Ben Williams have been on the podcast, and uh, yeah, <laughs> he's, a, he's a character, Vicey. The celebrities of the, the Afghan conflict, didn't they? Yeah, well, he's um he's actually a professional racing driver now for um is it is it uh, ja- Jaguar? Yeah, Jaguar Invictus or something like that, isn't it? I think it's it's I I might be wrong here, but it from what I understood, it, it's just a actual racing. There's no, it's not like a veteran thing or anything. It's straight down the line. Uh, good on him. I'm pleased for him. Yeah, yeah. So you found your obviously found your purpose in Civvy Street, as we call it. How how long did it, or how did you come to the idea of starting React, or what 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 was the build up to that? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't start React. It was far too good an idea for me to have come up with it. Um, I'm the I'm the third person to to be in here running this. Uh, I feel very fortunate to be doing it. Um, I went to work in the bank first, um, which just didn't fit for me. You know, I spent two or three years there, which was good to help me transition to being a civvy and learn a lot about business. But it just wasn't it wasn't for me that thing about purpose and culture. And I then went to work for Help for Heroes for a few years, which was this was me learning about myself. Um, you know, as, as we get older, you know, what we were at 22 is not what we should be at 40. And starting to understand what it is that drives me, what it is that motivates me. And uh, it's not about being happy. No one can be happy all the time. Happy, is a, you know, that's something you can feel some of the time, but we have to be on a spectrum of emotion. But fulfillment and being in the right place, I think is very important because that's what then prevents you know, things like the, the more severe mental health issues. You know, if you, if you find your right place. And for me, it wasn't about what I was getting paid, it was about what I was doing. It's the reason I decided to join the Corps when I was nine years old. And Help Heroes was a good step in that direction because at least it, it was pure of intent. But I wasn't directly involved in the Help for Heroes delivery to veterans. I was working the operations team, so I, still, I was still working in a very corporate-type environment. I was a pen pusher, um, as my old man would always call them. And that still wasn't for me. So to then be able to come and take over a very small disaster response organization built around veterans 
that was that was very much part of how I'm you know to be able to be directly involved in something that is entirely good, surrounded by great people. And that and that's how I've ended up here and I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky to be doing it. Mm. Did you I mean did you see an advertisement for the job or was it through a personal contact? I said earlier, I'm a, I'm a bit of a jammy bugger when it comes to it. Um, I was getting made redundant from Help Heroes. And uh, I think I got, you know, let's say I got told I'd be made redundant on the Monday. The following Monday, a headhunter had sent me a note on LinkedIn asking if I'd be interested in applying for this job here. I tried not to bite their hands off because it was just the most perfect opportunity for me. It brought together all the different experiences of my life into something. And also, it would give me the chance to to be a part of building something great because it was very small at the time. And uh, yeah, just me sort of proffing my way through life again without any real plan. So what's your, been your progression since you've been with React? What sort of um, disasters, what, how has that been? What, 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 what was your first challenge? I mean, when, when I started this journey, it was the uh, end of 2017 and they just responded um, to the Caribbean, British Virgin Islands had been flattened by Hurricanes Irma and Maria. And it was, it was just coming back from that, it was shaking out. They'd done some great work, but the organisation didn't have the infrastructure to deliver that kind of work on a sustained basis. And it hadn't quite decided what it was. Was it a veterans charity or was it a disaster response charity? So my first challenge was getting the team and the volunteer base. They were all incredibly passionate but they were passionate about different organizations in a way, because some thought it was a veterans charity, some thought it was a disaster response charity, some thought it was a club. The first challenge was bringing that together because some of those relationships were actually um, quite dysfunctional. So creating alignment and saying, right, this is what we're gonna be. You know, it's gonna be an international disaster response organization that takes the, the power and the skills of the veteran community and repurposes them. So it's not about the veterans, the veterans are delivering the work. And that was the first challenge. And then we, we bounced through three very difficult operations in Indonesia that year. We were deployed for almost six straight months as three tsunamis rolled over Indonesia. And we had people downrange when the aftershocks were happening in Lombok. You know, we had people out on Christmas Day. We went through a lot there. But that was when we started to prove that we could get teams into the hardest to reach corners of the world and um, to deliver great work for people that, you know, they just had their lives destroyed. And, and we could take the skills of the military and the, and the passion and the purpose and get these teams in where other people potentially couldn't. Um, and that was, you know, that was a fantastic roller coaster of the first year. And what is the, um, the recruitment process? How do, how do you get your, uh, would you call them volunteers or are they, is, is, yeah, they, they are volunteers, but it's, it's a bit like being a volunteer in the RLI. The volunteer sort of implies it's a bit, um, it's a bit, you know, cake party. It's not. These people are incredibly professional disaster responders, but they don't get paid. A bit like the lifeboat crews. You know, they're the best seen people in the world, but they don't get paid. What uh, we've never actually actively recruited until the COVID crisis, but uh, what would happen is that someone, and you don't have to have been a veteran. You know, we're 70% veteran and 30% other. It's just about the military approach and the military planning and the way we deliver operations. But they'd come down to our HQ in Chilmark and they do an initial selection weekend, which is just two days. We look at you, you look at us, lots of values-based stuff, but why are you doing this? Um, and this is what being a humanitarian means. This isn't the military anymore. We don't walk around in combat gear. This is in the humanitarian context, but your skills are valuable. And then if, if they like us and we like them and we think there's aptitude 
They're then qualified to work domestically here in the UK and they can come back for a week-long international operators course back here at Chilmark. That then puts them into the response pool. For those that um, show the right levels of leadership as well, there's then another course to become one of our operational leaders, which means they'd be the first person into a disaster to build an operation, but also lead the strike teams that then, then follow on. So it's all very similar to how you would have experienced it in the military, you know, start here, show progress, this, and then into leadership. Mm. Um, logistics, funding, it, 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 it all sounds colossal. How does all <laughs> that work? Um, so we do everything pretty much ourselves. We, we're funded entirely um, charitably, so we have to go and raise all the money ourselves while we're delivering these operations, which is, you know, that's the biggest pressure we're always under. Delivering the operation is the most important bit, but in some ways, it's the easiest bit, because that's how everyone's geared, that's what everyone joins for. Mm. Raising the money to do the work is, is a massive stress, and we, we constantly live under that pressure. We've never got quite enough, um, and it has all been through generosity of people or businesses. Um, we need to raise about £1.2 million pounds a year to, to keep this thing running. And that's a lot of money to, to raise. And we're, there's only um, 11 full-time staff, so we don't have uh, a big team to pull on. What we do have is a wonderful group of volunteers. Um, we've got 1,000 trained, and we've just had 6,000 veterans sign up to help uh, in the last four months. And we surge that capability into full logistics for ops rooms and things. We surge that in from the volunteer base, and they very much run the lion's share of, of everything that we do, and we, we just couldn't do it without them. Mm. How was it with all the training then? Um, it, it's an interesting subject in itself. Um, when you we, you mentioned the, volu the volunteer kind of tag, well, I've been a volunteer. I've volunteered in Mozambique, and I've, I've driven journalists to India and back, and... Uh, Two of the best things I've ever done in my life. Also, I even though I was a volunteer, I was still a what we we called it a development instructor. So mm -hmm. I'd had to do six months of training for um, for the for this role. But um, you got all kind of the, the 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 more we go forward in life, there seems to be more restrictions and regulations and qualifications and people ready to jump at you and 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 um kind of critic criticize your efforts is that something that you have to negotiate with care yeah of course i mean before we send anywhere send anyone anywhere you know our primary responsibility is to those volunteers you know the duty of care and we we have an organization that's deliberately geared to be able to take risk and you can take risk by ensuring the right level of training, the right level of recruitment, and the right level of procedures are in place. Because any fool can take risk, you know, just let's say fair, walk in, you know, th those are the cowboys, you know, that's the that's just being gung-ho. Being able to deliberately take risk in a controlled way is what this place is about. And that does mean we have to, we don't have regulation as such here, but we have to make sure we protect our people. And that's physically and mentally, you know, we can't put them into a situation we can't get out of. But we are putting them into situations where they're seeing very extreme things, like you and I talked about earlier. So we have to make sure the right support is in place for them because these people are fantastic and they're volunteering to do this great work. We have to make sure that the right support is in place for them so that we're not just burning them out and using them and then, and then discarding them. 
Mm. And what what were you doing in Mozambique? So Mozambique was uh, last March, and that was after um, Cyclone a day rolled over, and that was that was probably the. I think the seminal moment in this organization's development, that's when all of a sudden everything came together because we could show all of what we were capable of. Because the, the cyclone rolled through, which was devastating, but it was the, it was the floodwaters that followed and it, it completely changed the inland topography around the Beira district. And huge communities were, were cut off from any kind of support because the roads had been flooded and agencies couldn't get there. We were sending out very light, agile recce teams, getting out to communities, understanding the need, creating landing sites and calling forward um, helicopter drops of aid, which they were disseminating to the groups, moving off, um, sleeping in deserted buildings and doing that for, for 25, 27 days and um, getting aid into corners of that disaster where it was deemed unreachable for all other agencies. It was an incredibly proud moment for this organisation to see what, and they were volunteers that did that. Um, living out on rations um, for nearly a month at a time in Mozambique. You know Mozambique, it's, a, it's an austere environment to operate at the best of times, let alone when it was underwater. Um, and we, we were operating there for about three months whilst the bigger organisations started to find, uh, you know, establish themselves and waiting for the flood water to, to subside. We're, with that immediate response, that sort of 12 hours to 12 weeks thing, when, when the, the suffering and the chaos is, is so acute, but the big organisations are taking time to, to spin up. Gosh, it's, it, that really is in at the deep end because there's all sorts of side issues going on there. The, mal the malaria can be really bad in Mozambique. Um, yeah, malaria, you've got water, so there's typhoid. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of risks to navigate there. And there is the civil war still happening in the north. Uh, don't speak the language, there's a culture barrier. You know, there's a lot of issues in operating in Mozambique when you're a... A, a predominantly white Western organization going in that doesn't speak Portuguese or Swahili. Mm. And your, um, your staff, I try and avoid the word volunteers, but you know, anyway, your volunteers, your staff, what, what kind of journeys do they, um, what's their sort of journey? It must be, it must be a mix of a lot of things. It's, it sounds terribly exciting. Uh, adventurous um yeah it's it's a bit of all sorts we come from all different backgrounds uh, you know the, the majority have served in the military or the emergency services um but as i said not exclusively but then even within that demographic there's a huge range from people that are 22 to people that are about 65 they've done all sorts of different uh, jobs prior to getting here and you know, we've just been talking about the, the, the sharp end of the spear, dropping these teams in. But of course, it's not always like that. And we're becoming a big part of UK resilience. We have the need for people to be in ops rooms. We need people to do work in hospitals or welfare checks. So now we, we can use a, a much broader spectrum of uh, volunteers to make up the team. Uh, but they have come from all sorts of different backgrounds. It's amazing who you meet. I, I was at a food distribution task recently and I got chatting to one of the volunteers and it turns out he's the chief engineer on a land speed record. <laughs> you know, you're amazing, former RAF, and then he's got this incredible background and skill, but he's just giving it for free to, to do some good. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing people are having to manage this with their own careers or, or, or possibly lack of careers. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone, um, 
you know, obviously because of the nature of it, some of the people are slightly older because they're at a time in their life where they can control their, their portfolio of work a bit better. Um, but nearly all of them are out doing their careers, sort of sitting on a bleeper similar to the RNLI. And what we've seen with some of them is they get so so hooked on what it is we do, they start to create their work life around being able to do more humanitarian work. But we've got everything from tree surgeons to some people are still serving, builders, teachers, management consultants, you know, you name it. There's there's someone in, in the organization that does a real cross-section of society. Mm. And Rich, what do you need if there's anybody listening that can help you out? I mean, I'm guessing sponsorship is always going to be a, uh, a big one, is it? Yeah, money, unfortunately, is a dirty word. And, you know, everything we do costs money, unfortunately. And we, we're always looking to build new partnerships and new sponsorships. People that believe in what we're trying to do and want to be, be a part of it. And, and they can go to the React uh, website to have a look at that. Um, and, we, and we also, we, we constantly need good people. You know, and if there's people listening to this, they don't have to have served in the military, but they have to have that sort of sense of service, that desire to, to do good in the world. And to achieve something that potentially other organisations couldn't do, um, we're always looking for, for people to join up. So, you know, those are the two key drivers for us. Do you need any sort of supplies at all? Um, less so. Um, we need it at certain times. It's harder to predict often, but, uh, you know, yeah, we, we need uh, equipment lines. If, if there's organisations that can help supply with different parts of our safety equipment or our deployment kit, then that is uh, also very helpful because it saves us having to buy it. Mm. and rich where can people find you if they're interested what's that i'm guessing your website is their first port of call is it yeah uh, we've just built a new website so if they go to www.react that's re-act.org.uk and then it, it's all there it's, it's a very simple to navigate website but uh yeah go to the react uh website and uh, take it from there so for our friends at home, I'm often getting asked, Chris, I, I wanted to join the military, but I've got asthma or, or, or this kind of, you know, or they've got sort of moral, moral hesitations. This sounds great, folks, if you're listening. <laughs> this, is, this is something you can, you know, your moral compass is fine. You, you, you can throw yourself into it. You're going to get some real great life experience, which... Um, which is never, never a bad thing. Um, and you're going to get that sense of achievement and team spirit. And uh, you've got great guys like Rich looking after you. So did I sell it well, mate? Yeah, perfect. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Brilliant. Rich, thank you ever so much. Um, stay on the line. I'll just say our uh, official goodbye. But thank, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I wish you and your organization all the the very best um your when your face appears in someone's life it's when they need it the most and you know that's something you can uh, you can all be very proud of so thank you uh, thanks for having me cheers buddy to our friends at home thanks so much for watching or listening to another episode of the bought the t-shirt podcast please consider supporting us for 2 pounds a month on Patreon, and there's a whole host of benefits there. Uh, Instagram, I'm Chris.thrall. And uh, like and subscribe if you did like. Thank you. 
Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.